Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. By the President of the United States of America. A proclamation. Whereas great and weighty matters claiming the consideration of the Congress of the United States form an extraordinary occasion for convening them. I do by these presents appoint Monday, the 26th day of October next, for their meeting at the City of Washington, hereby requiring the respective senators and representatives then and there to assemble in Congress in order to receive such communications as may then be made to them, and to consult and determine on such measures, as in their wisdom may be deemed meet for the welfare of the United States. Done at the City of Washington, the 30th day of July, A.D. 1807, and in the 32nd year of the independence of the United States. Thomas Jefferson. December 3rd, 1807. Thomas Jefferson to Mr. Gallatin. Your proposition of yesterday has some good phases and merits consideration. I have only seen Mr. Madison as yet, who objects to it. Another proposition which may be considered is the continuing the suspension of the present law by an act of Congress to the last day of the session. Effectual salutations. What is good in this case cannot be affected. We have therefore only to find out what will be least bad. The chesapeake Leopard affair placed a president and an administration that was generally wary of armed conflict on the path of war a conflict that it could ill afford, and a challenge that it was ill-equipped to meet. Thus, in the time between first learning of the event and the new session of Congress, Jefferson and his administration worked to determine what was the quote-unquote least bad solution that could be found. It is this deliberation and response that we shall discuss in this episode, dear listener. Before we dive in, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Stacy from History's Trainwrecks and my husband Alex for providing the intro quotes for this episode. As we've seen in this podcast, there are parts of history that aren't as well covered in elementary or secondary school courses as we students of history might like. Stacy took his passion for studying the subject and started the History's Trainwrecks podcast to examine more of those points in history in more detail. Thus far, he has explored topics ranging from the career of Cato the Younger to the naming of Hoover Dam. He's currently in the midst of a series of episodes about Theodore Roosevelt that presidential history fans would enjoy. 
Once you're done with this episode, you can check out Stacy's podcast by going to History's Trainwrecks, that's all one word, dot com, or by searching for History's Trainwrecks anywhere fine podcasts can be found. My husband Alex has been pulled in to provide intro quotes on a number of occasions, and he never hesitates to offer his support. Without him, there very well may not have been a Presidency's podcast. I still remember talking with him one evening in the kitchen a few years back about my passion for history and my search for what to do with it. It was his suggestion that led me to start exploring just what it took to launch a podcast. And the rest is history. For all of his support over the years in all aspects of my life, I am eternally grateful. Je t'aime, mon mari, avec tout mon cœur. When last we left the tale of the Chesapeake Leopard Affair last episode, the USS Chesapeake had limped back to Norfolk after its embarrassing encounter with the HMS Leopard, which had left three American sailors dead and 18 injured. Commodore James Barron had to send word back to the government in Washington about what had transpired, and he chose his flag captain, Charles Gordon, and Dr. John Bullis, one of the civilians who had been traveling aboard the Chesapeake to the Mediterranean, to be his emissaries to carry his message. As noted by historian Ira Dye, choosing Gordon for this mission was a, quote, terrible mistake. Somebody was going to be held at fault for what had happened, and if it was not Gordon, it would be Barron himself. Allowing the politically seasoned Gordon to get his side of the story in front of the Secretary of the Navy was an act of professional suicide on the part of James Barron. Gordon had ties to the Nicholson family, a prominent political family in Democratic-Republican circles, and his aunt was the wife of Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin. As noted by historians Spencer Tucker and Frank Reuter in their work on the Chesapeake Leopard Affair, quote, In his report, Barron expressed no displeasure with his officer's conduct. Perhaps he assumed they would close ranks with him to protect their own reputations from the censure sure to follow. If so, he was sadly disappointed, for Gordon also carried a letter from the frigate's lieutenants to Secretary of the Navy Smith. As news traveled to the nation's capital, the citizens of Norfolk went into an uproar at what had happened off the coast. The Norfolk Gazette and Public Ledger asserted that the Chesapeake Leopard Affair, quote, had produced a degree of agitation beyond anything we ever witnessed or can attempt to describe. This was an insult to national honor, and thus, citizens of Norfolk, as well as nearby Portsmouth, gathered on June 24th, quote, and unanimously adopted resolutions calling for an end to all communication with or assistance to British warships now within our waters and on our coast, for citizens to wear crepe for 10 days in memory of those killed on the Chesapeake, for a subscription fund for the wounded and the families of those killed in the attack, and for Mayor Richard E. Lee to call out the militia. The British may have been a major naval power, but being so far away from the nearest British port, they were dependent on Americans for supplies, in particular, fresh water. Speaking of, the citizens of Norfolk didn't stop at passing resolutions. They took it upon themselves to, quote, destroy some 200 of the HMS Melampus's water cask, critical for a sea voyage. Captain Stephen Decatur, who was in command of naval forces at Norfolk, worked not only, quote, to prepare for a possible British attack, but also worked with Mayor Lee to protect the British consul at Norfolk 
as well as a British lieutenant who had the unfortunate task of bringing letters to the British consul and found himself under assault from the citizens of the town. In response to these actions taken against them, quote, the British not only kept their squadron inside the capes, but brought to all vessels passing in and out by firing warning shots. The squadron commander Douglas planned to deny passage of vessels to Norfolk until the citizen resolves were rescinded. The situation in the Hampton Roads area was approaching a boiling point. Meanwhile, Gordon and Bullis arrived at Washington on the 25th and delivered their messages. News of the Chesapeake Leopard affair was then printed in the National Intelligencer the following day under the headline, British Outrage. President Jefferson and his administration were faced with a few issues to deal with in the aftermath, the most immediate being to secure the American seaboard and U.S. vessels in case this was the beginning of a larger military offensive move on the part of the British. Though Secretary of War Henry Dearborn and Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin were away from Washington, Secretary of the Navy Smith was present and was able to spring into action. In addition to sending communication to Decatur in Norfolk, including an order for Decatur to take command of the USS Chesapeake, quote, and prepare her for sea, Smith wrote to Lieutenant Benjamin Reed in Baltimore, quote, to countermand an order for the sale of a schooner there and instead direct that she be fitted out for immediate service. Beyond just taking command of the Chesapeake, Decatur was also given, quote, command of all U.S. Navy forces on the southern U.S. coast. Unfortunately, this force didn't amount to much, but there was a squadron prepared and ready for action. Thus, Smith sent orders to the Mediterranean squadron, recalling them to return back to American waters. For six years, there had been a U.S. naval presence in the Mediterranean, but with these new orders, that squadron abroad came to an end the United States had to focus on defending its own shores rather than exerting naval influence abroad. In the interim, while word went across the Atlantic and this force returned home, Smith made preparations up and down the American coast by ordering, quote, gunboats and bomb catches to be made ready and concentrated at New Orleans, Charleston, Norfolk, and New York. Back in Washington, First Secretary Dearborn, then Secretary Gallatin, returned to the Capitol after being summoned by Jefferson. On July 2nd, after a meeting with his cabinet and a unanimous agreement to proceed accordingly, President Jefferson issued a proclamation, quote, hereby requiring all armed vessels bearing commissions under the government of Great Britain now within the harbors or waters of the United States, immediately and without any delay to depart from the same. The cabinet also agreed that, quote, a small armed vessel, the Revenge, should be sent to Britain, quote, with dispatches for U.S. Minister to Britain, James Monroe, instructing him to demand satisfaction for the attack on the Chesapeake. It would take time for any potential justice to come from the other side of the Atlantic, and we'll discuss the details of the administration's demands shortly but the administration also had other targets in mind to account for their respective responsibility for the Chesapeake Leopard affair. Secretary Smith, as he gave command of the Chesapeake to Decatur, also relieved the previous commander, Commodore James Barron, of his command and ordered a court of inquiry to be convened to determine whether there was any misconduct 
by the officers and crew of the USS Chesapeake that contributed to the shame of the incident on June 22nd. As noted by Tucker and Reuter, quote, the general public and Barron's own junior officers demanded his court-martial. It is safe to assume that the lieutenants were at least, in part, motivated by a desire to exonerate themselves. While it is beyond the scope of this podcast to go into all of the ins and outs of the court-martial, and I recommend Tucker and Reuter's Injured Honor as a great source to learn more about it, there are a couple of points to note here. First, the person originally called upon to serve as the president of the Court of Inquiry, our old friend Commodore Edward Prable, was unable to serve due to poor health. Sadly, I have to report that this is the last we shall hear of Prable as he passed away on August 25th. The passing of the most successful naval commander in American history since John Paul Jones during the Revolution occurring at the same time as the dissolution of the Mediterranean squadron that Prable had commanded, seems, at least to me, a symbol of the shift in U.S. naval policy, something we shall discuss in more detail shortly. Despite the loss of Prable, the Court of Inquiry was convened on October 5th, and of the four individuals brought up on charges and found guilty on charges, only Commodore Barron and Gunner William Hook would truly receive punishment. Indeed, Hook, despite being the lowest-ranked person of the four, received the harshest sentence, dismissal from service. Barron was found guilty of, quote, neglecting on the probability of an engagement to clear the ship for action, and was suspended from service for five years. Flag Captain Charles Gordon, despite being found guilty of, in general, quote, negligently performing the duty assigned him, was only sentenced to a, quote, private reprimand by the Secretary of the Navy or by such person as he, i.e. the Secretary, may think proper to appoint for that purpose. Tucker and Reuter attributed this lenient sentence to Gordon's, quote, political connections. Marine Captain John Hall was likewise found, quote, guilty of negligently performing the duty assigned him and was also sentenced to a reprimand by the Navy Secretary, quote, at such time and in such manner as he shall think most proper. Though it will be a while before he comes back into the narrative, this will not be the last we hear from James Barron. For now, just know that he would carry with him moving forward the shame of dereliction of duty, a burden which would not be lifted from his shoulders for the rest of his days. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. In his response to the crisis in early July 1807, Jefferson and his cabinet also had to consider whether to call Congress back into session. Despite knowing that calling Congress back quickly would likely result in a declaration of war, Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin and Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith 
in one of the rare instances of agreement between the two, felt that Congress should be brought back into session as soon as possible. Aware of the war fever that was building in both political and social circles, the President and Secretary of State James Madison felt it best to allow some time to pass and hopefully have tempers cool before Congress returned. The decision was made for a proclamation to be issued on August 24th, nearly two months after the Chesapeake Leopard incident, calling for Congress to reconvene a few weeks earlier than originally planned on October 26th. This was, of course, with the caveat that no further action was taken by the British. If necessary, the call could be made at any time to bring Congress back immediately. As noted by Tucker and Reuter, quote, President Jefferson felt as vindictive and angry as the most contentious of his fellow citizens. But regardless of Jefferson's own emotions, common sense dictated that he act with caution and wait for more information before determining official policy. In the meantime, he had scarcely more accurate information for assessing the rumors of British military activity than did the average citizen. This did not stop the administration, however, from taking a few more precautions. The cabinet decided on July 5th to send a request to state governors to call up 100,000 militia troops. Meanwhile, Secretary of War Dearborn would work on the ground to organize the defenses of New York City. Once orders were sent off to various points of the nation and world, the president and his closest advisors could do little more but wait to see what happened and continue to plot out next steps in the best case or worst case scenario. As noted by Madison biographer Ralph Ketchum, quote, the cabinet planned diplomatic moves and considered the state of the nation's defenses. Gallatin drew a long memorandum on the status of 15 seaports he thought easy to defend and seven others, including New York, Washington, Norfolk, and New Orleans, that require particular attention and more powerful means of defense. Gallatin also outlined military operations against Halifax and other places in Canada and gave estimates of the men and money necessary for them. During July 1807, frantic plans on paper for war and desperate hopes for peace at once occupied the cabinet as it encountered the most serious threat of war since the XYZ affair of 1798. For a time, it seemed that war would come, whether the U.S. was prepared for it or not. Indeed, around the time that the cabinet was deliberating in Washington, quote, a British frigate fired on a harmless United States revenue cutter carrying Vice President George Clinton and his daughter from New York to Washington. At this point, though the Jefferson administration was unaware of this fact, the British government had not weighed in on whether it actually sought a war with the United States or not. While it would take some time for word to travel across the Atlantic about the incident, the British ships in American waters decided, quote, after considerable verbal abuse of local authorities, to abide by Jefferson's proclamation and leave U.S. ports. July came and went without any other British military aggressions. As the summer progressed, the president ordered land defenses on the Virginia coast to be downgraded, quote, to a roving cavalry patrol and gave permission for, quote, port officials to supply British armed ships 
with water and food. Again, from Tucker and Reuter, quote, As the Royal Navy reduced its presence, the pervasive public anger dissipated. It was a precipitous development for the United States, for, despite the big push coming from the administration, it took nearly five months after the Chesapeake Leopard affair before 16 gunboats in Norfolk, quote, had commanding officers, and only five were lieutenants. As noted by historian Tom Armstrong in his biography of Robert Smith, quote, limitations that the Congress had previously placed upon the Navy left defense preparations inadequate. While international and domestic crises confronted the government, Smith seemed constantly to battle for adequate funds to allow his department to function properly. Had an invasion truly been the aim of the British government in 1807, it is very likely that they would have succeeded. The events of June 22nd, though, would come as a complete surprise to the Portland Ministry back in London. This news would find the two chief U.S. diplomats in London already reeling from their own surprising news. As discussed last episode, Jefferson and Secretary of State Madison had rejected the treaty negotiated by U.S. Minister to Britain James Monroe and U.S. Special Envoy William Pinckney. As we've talked about in the past, communication across the Atlantic could sometimes take quite a while, as evidenced by the fact that it took until months after they had negotiated the treaty and sent it on that Monroe and Pinckney learned in April 1807 that they were to limit their negotiations with the British to the issue of impressment per Madison's orders. They were, at that point, in the midst of negotiations of the U.S.-Canadian border. The next month brought Jefferson's personal letter to Monroe, quoted last episode, as well as word that their treaty would not be put before the Senate, and new orders from Madison to submit any treaty that they negotiated to the administration before it could be concluded. Micromanagement doesn't sit well with anyone, and it certainly didn't sit well with Monroe. He had thought himself a trusted agent of Jefferson, and now his judgment was being called into question not only by another of the president's protégés, but also by Thomas Jefferson himself. Meanwhile, he had been receiving letters from none other than Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, about how Jefferson had strayed from the cause. According to Randolph, quote, Never, in my opinion, had the cause of free government more to fear than now. And unlike the administration, Randolph praised the qualities that Monroe brought to the table. Randolph also reminded the diplomat abroad that there was an election coming up in 1808. Perhaps, just perhaps, Monroe should succeed his longtime mentor Jefferson. Randolph and his associates certainly thought so, and quote, Now that the president has totally abandoned the treaty, Monroe kept his options open. Monroe and Pinckney, meanwhile, kept up their work at renegotiating the treaty with the new British Foreign Secretary, George Canning, based on Madison's new guidance, though, as pretty much everyone knew, the effort was hopeless. In late July, circumstances changed a bit as news of the Chesapeake Leopard affair arrived in London. Indeed, it would be from Canning that the two American diplomats would learn of the matter. 
Canning did the honor of sending a private note to Monroe to, quote, express his regrets. Canning's position, however, would quickly cool as dispatches from British minister to the U.S. David Erskine and other British agents in the U.S. started coming in that included, quote, copies of the most vehement American newspapers. As Monroe and Canning discussed the situation, both men dug into their positions. Canning concerned himself with the matter of the nationality of the four men removed from the Chesapeake, while Monroe insisted that the practice of impressment was the real issue, not the nationality of the men. The British should not have boarded the Chesapeake regardless. Ultimately, the Portland government came to the conclusion that the Americans should be placated as they could ill afford to drive the U.S. into the arms of France when the war against that nation was going so poorly. Thus, quote, at Canning's request, King George formally apologized for the attack on the Chesapeake. Both the king and the foreign minister publicly stated that the Royal Navy should never stop the national ships of a neutral country and certainly not fire upon them. His Majesty's government also offered compensation to the families of the American seamen killed during the attack. This presented hope that the frosty reception that had epitomized most of Monroe's tenure in London might just be thawing a bit. Then, Madison's instructions, with the administration's demands to resolve the Chesapeake Leopard affair, arrived. Naturally, Jefferson and his administration sought, quote, both an apology and an explanation for the Leopard's attack, as well as the return of the four men taken from the Chesapeake, compensation, quote, for damages to the ship itself, a court-martial for Captain Humphreys, and the recall of Admiral Berkeley. The president, though, pushed things one step too far. Over the objections of Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin, Secretary of War Dearborn, and Secretary of the Navy Smith, Jefferson had insisted that Madison's instructions to Monroe and Pinckney include a demand for, quote, the British government's disavowal of impressment from American merchant ships as well as from U.S. naval ships. As Tucker and Reuter explained in their book on the Chesapeake Leopard Affair, quote, in so doing, he, Jefferson, committed a diplomatic blunder that would haunt the rest of his presidency. His detailed instructions to Monroe and Pinckney backed the British government into a diplomatic corner, leaving it little room to maneuver. The Portland Ministry had already agreed to recall Admiral Berkeley as well as order Captain Humphreys home, but was facing criticism in the press about conceding too much to the Americans. The public didn't necessarily want a war with the U.S., but they also didn't want British honor to be diminished by conceding too much to what it saw as a minor power. Monroe, following Madison's orders, continued to push for a disavowal of the practice of impressment, even going so far as to suggest, quote, that impressment of American sailors indicated Britain's continued lack of respect for the United States to which Canning responded that he felt that the American minister was exploiting the crisis coming out of one incident to try to get his way on a larger issue, which, to be fair, was what Jefferson was aiming to do. 
seeing that further negotiation with Monroe and Pinckney was pointless, so long as they would not, quote, separate the general issue of impressment from the specific problems rising from the Chesapeake crisis. Canning informed the two American diplomats that he was sending an envoy to Washington to negotiate with the President and the Secretary of State directly. This development, in turn, pushed Monroe beyond his breaking point. James Monroe had been U.S. Minister to Britain for over four years at this point, and in that time, he had accomplished little. He had been rebuffed by minister after minister in a seemingly quixotic quest to resolve issues with the British government. His negotiations for the Floridas had come to naught. When he had finally achieved a diplomatic breakthrough with the Monroe-Pinckney Treaty, his efforts had been rejected by his own government in the form of his two supposed friends and colleagues. All he had to show for his time in London was greater debts and aggravation. And as William Pinckney had already been authorized to take over his post as U.S. Minister to Britain whenever Monroe was ready to return home, there was little reason for him to stay any longer. Thus, on October 8th, he wrote to Secretary of State Madison that, quote, My communications with Mr. Canning are essentially closed. And in consequence, I have taken leave of the king and shall sail in about a week or ten days for the United States. He attributed blame to interests including, quote, British merchants, the East India Company, and the Royal Navy for the failure of his mission. But there were two others that we can imagine, though he likely wouldn't have admitted it, that bore some responsibility as well. If not for Jefferson and Madison, the Monroe-Pinckney Treaty would have helped to bring U.S.-British relations back from the brink at least a little bit. Instead, as the Monroes prepared to return home after half a decade away, there was a great fear that war would not be long in coming for their nation. Taking us back to the United States, we must briefly touch on one matter that came before the administration at the same time as they were responding to the Chesapeake Leopard matter and dealing with the aftermath of the unsuccessful prosecution of Aaron Burr. It's beyond our scope to go into too much detail with this, but it involves an individual that we've come across multiple times already, the latest being in episode 3.31. Edward Livingston was becoming a name to know in New Orleans, and in late 1807, he came to the attention of the Jefferson administration. Livingston was claiming rights to what was called a bature, or a beach on the Mississippi River near New Orleans. As described by Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone, it was, quote, that part of the bed of the Mississippi at New Orleans, below the levee, that was dry for about half the year and covered with water during the remainder. I know you're asking yourself, dear listener, why would this come to the attention of the President of the United States? Well, this particular bature, quote, was said to have measured in 1806 from 122 to 247 yards in breadth at low water and was estimated by Jefferson as being worth half a million dollars. Jefferson was informed that this land, quote, had been used by the inhabitants of New Orleans to furnish earth for streets and courtyards, to provide in the dry season a landing for boats from upstream, and, when inundated, to serve as a harbor where boats could be anchored. It had long been considered public land, but now Livingston and a partner were attempting not just to establish a legal claim to the land, but also, quote, 
construct a canal and levee through the Bachua. In mid-1807, when Livingston had sent workers to begin construction, these workers were driven off by local citizens. Again, though, I can hear you ask why Jefferson would need to be involved in this. Couldn't the Orleans territorial governor handle this? Indeed, William C.C. Claiborne was working with members of the New Orleans City Council, and in the latter part of the year, a resolution was adopted transferring claim to the Bachua to the federal government. Claiborne had meanwhile already reported back to the president his belief that the federal government already had ownership of the land. Claiborne also shared that, quote, Mr. Livingston is alike feared and hated by most of the ancient inhabitants. They dread his talents as a lawyer and hate his views of speculation, which in the case of the Bachure was esteemed very generally by the Louisianians no less iniquitous than ruinous to the welfare of the city. Naturally, with so much going on and with the 10th Congress about to come into session, Jefferson didn't have much time to think about the matter. Instead, he referred it to Attorney General Caesar Rodney, who responded on October 24th that, in his opinion, quote, the Bachure was the property of the United States, and that under an act of Congress adopted earlier that year, the government was explicitly authorized to eject intruders from its lands. With that, Secretary of State Madison was authorized to send orders to the Marshal of the Orleans Territory, quote, to remove any persons who had settled or taken possession of the Bachure. By March 1, 1808, Jefferson learned from Claiborne that Jefferson's orders had been executed, and Jefferson referred the entire matter to Congress for its concurrence. We'll leave this here and pick it back up in the Jefferson post-presidency episode, as there is more to discuss, but a couple of points I wanted to note here. First, as noted by Malone, quote, Rodney's opinion in the matter does not appear to have been based on much study, but it was accepted by Jefferson and his colleagues at a cabinet meeting, and action was unanimously agreed upon. Malone later goes on to give Rodney at least a little credit when he wrote, quote, in this extraordinarily complicated case, it is difficult indeed to determine where the right lay and how serious the situation was. But in the effort to safeguard what Jefferson believed to be an imperiled public interest, he resorted to an uncharacteristic exercise of authority. We're going to see the administration exert more forceful authority in the latter days of Jefferson's presidency than we've seen generally to date as the Bachur controversy prefaces. Likewise, I think I've said previously to look out for Edward Livingston. I can assure you, we will hear from him again. The 10th United States Congress began its first session on October 26, 1807, as summoned by Jefferson, and the president had much to report to the legislative body when he sent over his annual message the next day, likely conveyed by his private secretary, Isaac Coles. The message began with an explanation for the earlier-than-usual convening. Quote, Circumstances, fellow citizens, which seriously threaten the peace of our country, have made it a duty to convene you at an earlier period than usual. He revealed the Monroe-Pinckney Treaty and why it was deemed inadequate to present for ratification due to it not resolving the impressment issue, which, as proven by the Chesapeake Leopard Affair, was a crucial foreign relations issue. 
He also noted the British orders in council of January 7th, which he reported had resulted in, quote, our trade on the Mediterranean being swept away by seizures and condemnations, and that trade in other seas is threatened with the same fate. The best news that he could deliver was that matters with Spain seemed to be at a stalemate, and there had been no further aggression since Wilkinson had reached the agreement on the Sabine River frontier. As noted by Malone in his assessment of Jefferson's intentions with his message, Malone felt, quote, that he, Jefferson, hoped for the continuance of public indignation against the British in support of his efforts to gain satisfaction from them. But it was not to be expected that public indignation would continue at fever pitch in the absence of further provocation. And in the weeks following his Chesapeake proclamation, he, again, Jefferson, had done more to allay than to hide it. In his message to Congress, he managed, with the help of his advisors, to avoid impaling himself on either horn of his dilemma. The problem with this middle ground, however, is that, again from Malone, quote, his report on the efforts of the government to prepare for possible hostilities was couched in such general terms that his auditors could have gained the impression that it had done considerably less than it actually did. Though Jefferson was vague about certain items in his annual message, there was one point that he made rather clear, and that was coastal defense. He informed the Congress, quote, The appropriations of the last session for the defense of our seaport towns and harbors were made under expectation that a continuance of our peace would permit us to proceed in that work according to our convenience. It has been thought better to apply the sums then given toward the defense of New York, Charleston, and New Orleans chiefly, as most open and most likely first to need protection, and to leave places less immediately in danger to the provisions of the present session. The gunboats, too, already provided, have on a like principle been chiefly assigned to New York, New Orleans, and the Chesapeake. Whether our movable force on the water so material in aid of the defensive works on the land should be augmented in this or any other form is left to the wisdom of the legislature. For the purpose of manning these vessels in sudden attacks on our harbors, it is a matter for consideration whether the seamen of the United States may not justly be formed into a special militia to be called on for tours of duty in defense of the harbors where they shall happen to be, the ordinary militia of the place furnishing that portion which may consist of landsmen. The president had become increasingly vocal on the subject of gunboats, even before the Chesapeake Leopard incident. In February 1807, he had sent a message to Congress, quote, recommending that 200 gunboats be built. Why gunboats, you ask? Well, if you'll remember from our episodes on the Tripolitan War, Gunboats had played a key role in helping to maintain the blockade of the harbor of Tripoli due to their easy maneuverability, and Tripoli had likewise used gunboats in their harbor defense, as described in episode 3.17. What Jefferson did not take into consideration, though, was the scope. The Tripolitan Harbor was just that, one harbor. The administration had to plan for the defense of a coastline that was thousands of miles long, stretching from the main district to the Georgia coast, then the mouth of the Mississippi River and the Gulf of Mexico. Sure, gunboats could help to protect key harbors, 
But could they really take on frigates in Chesapeake Bay or out in the open waters? Further, they were, in terms of long-distance travel, slow-going, and in open waters, traveling in the small vessels could be treacherous, especially in adverse weather conditions. Jefferson and the advocates of the gunboat theory argued that the ships were cheaper, quicker to produce, and enough gunboats together could be just as effective against a large vessel as a frigate of equal size. There was an opponent to the gunboat theory in the administration, however. Secretary of the Navy, Robert Smith. Smith, given his years of experience in running the Navy Department, understood the advantages and disadvantages of the various vessels in the American service and advocated that the construction of new ships of the line had to be included in the defense plan. As was often the case in Jefferson's cabinet, Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin argued against Smith's position. Gallatin, with his mind always focused on the national budget, was in favor of the cheaper gunboats and asserted that, quote, in times of war, any number of gunboats could be built within 30 days. This was, of course, an over-exaggeration, and even Jefferson recognized as such. However, as we've already seen in the podcast, Jefferson, the professional military skeptic, was already inclined to support gunboats, and thus his inclusion in the annual message of the possibility of a new branch of militia focused on gunboat service. Smith, meanwhile, would be a loyal member of Jefferson's cabinet and lobbied Congress to approve an appropriation to construct new gunboats. As described by Smith biographer Tom Armstrong, quote, Secretary Smith's seeming acquiescence to Jefferson's decision about gunboats was based on the belief that the buildup of naval power in most any area was preferable to doing nothing. Jefferson's ultimate goal, though, was to achieve the administration's diplomatic aims without conflict, and he and his cabinet had spent some time since the Chesapeake Leopard incident plotting out exactly how that could come about and, once that was determined, how to get Congress on board to implement this plan. As always, Congress was likely to be a challenging partner, but circumstances were a bit better for the president going into the 10th Congress. Representative John Randolph of Roanoke's ongoing rebellion against the administration, as discussed in past episodes, was a problem. But as described by Dumas Malone, quote, the revolt of John Randolph, far from dividing the Republicans seriously, had caused all but a fragment of them to rally even more closely around Jefferson as their leader. Indeed, Randolph's staunch supporter and benefactor, Speaker of the House Nathaniel Macon, Democratic-Republican from North Carolina, realized the way the winds were blowing and decided to make himself scarce at the beginning of the session, which paved the way for the pro-administration Representative Joseph B. Varnum, Democratic-Republican from Massachusetts, to be elected as Speaker. Varnum had previously challenged Macon for the Speakership in the previous Congress, as discussed in Episode 3.31, but now Macon didn't even put up a fight to retain the post. With Varnum's election, Randolph was removed from his post as chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, and his replacement, Representative George W. Campbell, Democratic-Republican from Tennessee, quote, as floor leader during this session, matched Randolph at his best. With more amenable congressional leadership in place, it now came to the administration to push an agenda forward. 
There was precedent for the people on the eastern seaboard using economic means to exert influence, starting with the lead-up to the Revolutionary War. The president, along with others, could remember the boycotts and economic sanctions that had proliferated at the time. Jefferson and his Secretary of State had long been advocates of using trade as a weapon to influence foreign powers as an alternative to armed conflict. So it is hardly surprising that it was in this avenue that the administration's discussions about an official response fell. Now, there was already the Non-Importation Act that had been in place since the year prior, but was not at that point in effect. It had gone into effect on November 15, 1806, as originally intended, and over the next few weeks there were, quote, a number of prosecutions, seizures, and penalties. However, Jefferson had proposed, and Congress had agreed to suspend it to allow for negotiations with the British to continue. The suspension had a deadline of December 14th. As noted by Malone, quote, what had hitherto been, except for a few weeks, merely a threat, could now be regarded as an anti-British measure of reprisal or economic coercion. Though not a powerful weapon, it was two-edged, and Americans, as well as English, could expect financial injury from it. The administration agreed that it did not go far enough, and there was talk in their circles of suggesting that the president be given more control by Congress over applying economic pressure when needed. Jefferson Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, however, had some concerns about the politics of the plan and wrote to the president on December 2nd, quote, Supposing that the power to lay embargoes should be considered as improper to be vested in the president during the session of Congress, how would this plan answer? To repeal the present Non-Importation Act and in lieu thereof to pass a general Non-Importation Act from Great Britain to take place, say, on 1st February next. This is thrown out for consideration and may be liable to other objections, but might pass the House with more facility than the other plan. While Jefferson, in his reply the next day, noted that Madison objected to the idea, he felt that it, quote, has some good phases and merits consideration, and concluded his quick note to Gallatin by asserting that, as heard in one of our opening quotes for this episode, quote, What is good in this case cannot be effective. We have therefore only to find out what will be least bad. It would quickly become apparent that a response was needed, sooner rather than later. The administration started receiving dire reports from its agents in Europe. It was becoming clear that French Emperor Napoleon was determined to enforce his Berlin Decree against all powers, including the United States. Meanwhile, a proclamation from British King George III asserted that the United Kingdom was doubling down on the practice of impressment and intended to be even more aggressive about it. The British were now denying the validity of papers of naturalization to prove that one was an American citizen, so there were even less safeguards than previously for sailors on U.S. ships. Accordingly, Jefferson sent a special message to Congress on December 18th with accompanying documents. His message read as follows, quote, The communications now made, showing the great and increasing dangers with which our vessels, our seamen, and merchandise are threatened on the high seas and elsewhere from the belligerent powers of Europe, 
and it being of the greatest importance to keep in safety these essential resources, I deem it my duty to recommend the subject to the consideration of Congress, who will doubtless perceive all the advantages which may be expected from an inhibition of the departure of our vessels from the ports of the United States. Their wisdom will also see the necessity of making every preparation for whatever events may grow out of the present crisis. With this message, President Jefferson was officially recommending that Congress authorize a full embargo. But what is an embargo, and how does it differ from the Non-Importation Act, you ask? The Non-Importation Act had a limited scope in terms of the goods that could not be imported into the U.S. and was more focused on the trade with Britain than with France. The embargo that Jefferson was talking about, and which was both presented as a bill and approved in the Senate on the same day as Jefferson's message was delivered, was a general prohibition of all foreign trade. Before we turn to the action taken by the House, let's zoom in for a second on what occurred in the Senate and catch up with someone that we've discussed in the past, Senator John Quincy Adams of Massachusetts. Senator Adams had been aligned with the Federalists in Congress previously, but by this point, he had found himself in accord with some of the views of his Democratic-Republican colleagues, to the point that, as his biographer Samuel Flagg Bemis remarks, quote, at this juncture, Adams considered himself in communion with no party in the United States. Thus, when the proposal of an embargo came up, and he was appointed to a committee of five to consider Jefferson's message of the 18th, he agreed to pushing it forward to the full Senate that day, though, as he noted to a fellow senator, quote, this measure will cost you and me our seats, but private interest must not be put in opposition to public good. Adams was one of the 22 senators to vote for the embargo versus six against. We shall, of course, return to the senator from Massachusetts later, but for now, let's see what the House had to say about the embargo. The House's deliberations carried on a bit longer than those in the Senate and were in closed session, so we have no record of the arguments made for or against. Though Representative John Randolph of Roanoke won the privilege of introducing the measure in the House over one of his colleagues, he would ultimately vote against the embargo. He would, however, be in the minority as the House approved of the embargo by a vote of 82 to 44, and on December 22nd, Jefferson signed it into law. The title of this episode is taken from a political cartoon that came out in 1808 in protest of the embargo, featuring a turtle named O'Grabme who is biting an American trader on his posterior. As you could probably imagine, dear listener, the Embargo Act would prove to be wildly unpopular, but that is something that we will have to discuss in further detail next episode. We will begin next time, though, with an act that went into effect on January 1st, 1808, which was titled, An Act to Prohibit the Importation of Slaves into Any Port or Place Within the Jurisdiction of the United States. Special thanks again to Stacy and Alex for providing the intro quotes for this episode, and be sure to check out History's Trainwrecks wherever fine podcasts can be found. A link to Stacy's podcast is included on the source notes for this episode, which you can find on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, that's blueberry without the E's, dot com.
There, you can also learn more about the itinerant band who graciously allowed us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this series. The website also has past episodes of the podcast, as well as a wealth of links to resources to learn more about all of the presidents. Thanks so much as well to Alex Van Rose for his audio editing work on this episode. If you're looking for an editor for your podcast or audio project, the link to Alex's page on Fiverr can be found in the Source Notes page for this episode. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also find me on social media. I'm on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. I'd also like to take the opportunity to thank HokieBoy96 for the recent five-star review left on Apple Podcast. The review is titled, Such Great Tale, Lovingly Told, and reads as follows, quote, This is such a great podcast. My only regret is that Jerry will have to live another hundred years to reach my personal hero, FDR. Oh well, I can wait that long. I promise you, I will do my best to live another hundred years to get through as many presidents as I can. And I look forward to the day when one way or another, I'm able to devote my full energies to podcasting, as it is, as you can tell, very much a passion of mine. I'm so grateful for all the support provided by all of you, be it through leaving a rating and review, or contributing to the podcast through Patreon, or the fulfillment of book requests on the list provided through the website, or in sharing information about the podcast on social media, or with that history buff in your life who you know would love the deep dive provided here. I cannot thank all of you enough for listening, and I look forward to continuing this journey through the annals of presidential history with you. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.